We kicked off this uh, year in, uh, well, January, obviously. <laughs> Stating the obvious. We kicked off this year, the very first Sunday of the year, and I got ordained. Woohoo! <laughs> so uh, it's fun and kind of fitting that I'm wrapping up uh, our final Sunday of Advent together here uh, with this message, and I'm excited to bring it to you. Uh, in 1984, thinking way back to that wonderful year, um, a book was published. And uh, it remained on the New York Times bestseller list every year. And I went back for 38 years. That's a long time to be on that list. In 2007, USA Today included it in its 25 most influential books of the past 25 years. You're starting to think, what book could that be? Over 22 million copies have been sold. And it's even described as a Bible for its category of literature. And in June of 1995, I surprised my husband and I gave him his very own copy of that famous book. We were planning um, our fourth annual summer backpacking and a fishing trip into the high Sierras. We were getting our gear organized, getting out the topo maps before we had like on our phones and could see it there. We actually had big paper maps getting all that stuff organized. Glenn was paging through a Field and Stream magazine, and I, I took the time to actually find it. And on eBay, this is the magazine from that year. And uh, he was getting his tips on the fishing equipment. You know, back in the day, Google was called magazines. <laughs> if your kids aren't aware of these like, paper little mini thin books. Anyway, um, so I want you to picture this scene. We're in our home in Whittier, and on the coffee table in front of Glenn was a tackle box. There's a bunch of bait. There's some hooks. There's a bunch of canteens out. We're trying to decide which one we're going to take. And there's some rope. There's a bedroll over there by the TV. It's unrolled, airing out. We get a big box down out of the attic with hiking boots and our hats and the socks and backpacks, all the things. And everything was open. Everything was being taken inventory, and we were in full prep mode, but things were about to change. I sat down next to Glenn while he was looking through that magazine, and I quietly handed him that New York Times best-selling book that would signal the shift in all of our plans and expectations for what this summer would end up looking like. Next slide. I knew it. And it, <laughs> some of you know that cover really well. I actually found this is the cover from that year. Um, the reality of that book took a minute to settle in, but What to Expect When You're Expecting was the book that I placed in front of that Field and Stream magazine, and he paused, he was quiet. You know, for six years, we had been trying unsuccessfully to get pregnant. We'd been to the doctors, we were referred to specialists, um, we both went through testing. Um, I ended up having a surgery, nothing worked. Month after month after month hopes of having a child never came to be. And friends around us got pregnant. We all went to their showers. Um, we continued to pray. We waited. We did all the techniques. In fact, just two weeks earlier from that moment, my younger and newlywed sister had called to share her good news that she was pregnant. <laughs> but for us, pregnancy just kept on slipping away. Hopes unfulfilled, expectations not met until that afternoon in June of 1995. You see, I took what would be my last pregnancy test, and I saw the most beautiful little red line materialize before me, positive. Yay! 
We were finally pregnant. <laughs> I rushed out that day to a bookstore. Remember those? <laughs> and I got an actual physical copy of that book, and I waited eagerly, so excited for Glenn to get home so I could tell him that great news. And after he made sense of everything, sitting there on that sofa, we hugged in joy with the book and that magazine kind of squished between the two of us, and we began all new plans. Plans that would not include an eight-day fishing trek into the Sierras, but would be preparing us for a baby, a baby that we've been longing and praying and hoping for all these years. It would have been a very different story if we hadn't been expecting or longing for a baby. An unexpected baby might be at first a shock or even a disappointment for some. An unexpected pregnancy can bring fear or anxiety. But ours, ours was long expected and long hoped for, this child. And we shifted plans happily. Well, maybe I shifted more happily than Glenn. Uh, but from fishing and hiking to prepping the house and our lives for this long expected child. So today is the fourth week of Advent, and we've been dwelling in God's Word each Sunday together with the theme of expectation. And today I want us to consider what to expect when we're expecting, not our own child, but the child, Jesus, and also what the unexpected looks like and how everything helps us to see and know God. Listen for that as we understand God's Word, the expectation the unexpected, and what God does in our lives through it all to bring us to Jesus. And last week in Matthew, Joe preached and we saw rule-following Joseph's expectations and how God moved in his life to prepare him and uh, even shift his expectations. And today, we're going to pick up and we're going to go back to Luke, where we left off a couple of weeks ago. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in, again in verse 39, Luke chapter 1, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. You know, something interesting to notice in, in that in Jesus' birth, as well as the account of his resurrection, the first witnesses are women. And that's interesting. Luke opens up his account, and if you want to go back to the beginning of this chapter, you can go back there in verse 1, and he says, a lot of people um, have, have tried to work out this story and, and take account of it in the life of Jesus, but Luke's priority was to provide a reliable testimony and an orderly account. In verse 3, he says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I, too, decided to write an orderly account. You know, in the first century when Luke was writing, the testimony of women wasn't even admissible in court. Luke is writing history, not fiction, and if he were trying to come up with a creative tale about Jesus that was trying to persuade people, he wouldn't have used women as his first witnesses to Jesus' birth or his resurrection. There's no way that he would have included the testimony of women. He just wouldn't have. But that is exactly and unexpectedly what Dr. Luke does. The fact that Luke, who said his goal was to write a reliable account, would use the testimony of women is amazing. And it's unexpected. And affirms the beautiful truth that God values and elevates the unexpected, in this case, women. In particular, an elderly, post-menopausal woman. Now, I know whenever I, I give categories, or Joe does from up here, 
we put ourselves in the category. So there's some of you in the room going, oh, that's, that's me, you know? <laughs> Elderly, postmenopausal, you're like, you're, I'm in that category. There's a little less of you in this room who are in Mary's category, a teenage girl. But nonetheless, you know an elderly postmenopausal woman. You know a teenage girl. You can, you can picture their life, what's going on with them. But Luke begins with these two women and two miraculous, unexpected conceptions. Elizabeth, who's well beyond childbearing age. Mary, who's still a virgin, both pregnant. Completely unexpected. And recall that at this time, at this point in history, maybe you know, how long has it been since we've heard from God? 400 years, this intertestamental period it's called. 400 years of silence. No prophet has spoken for God. No accounts, no prophecies. Malachi was the last prophet to utter God's words, and it's been 400 years. And then in an unexpected moment, while lighting incense in the temple, God's messenger, Gabriel, breaks the silence. Gabriel appears to an elderly priest. He appears to a man named Zechariah, who is the direct descendant of the first priest, Aaron. And while he was serving in the temple, he appears to him at the altar and announces to him that his barren wife, Elizabeth, would have a son. And Zechariah, who's literally just been praying for the people of Israel and praying for a child, is standing in the presence now of God's messenger declaring that his prayers are answered. And instead of believing, he questions Gabriel in doubt about how could this possibly be? 400 years of silence and that's the first thing you say to God's angel? So as a result of that, the power of speech is taken away from him. I want you to think about this. What use is the man or woman of God if they don't believe the words of God? No one is helped by the words of a priest who doesn't believe the words of God. And so Zechariah doesn't get to have any more words. He's silenced. 400 years of silence essentially continues through the priesthood. And think about this from Elizabeth's perspective. Her husband comes home from work and <laughs> normally chatty Zechariah, silent. So he makes some signs. He writes words on a tablet. And somehow he communicates what's happened with Gabriel. But he remains silent. And then, to her great joy, she discovers she is pregnant. Weeks then, months pass. And one day... There's a knock at the door. It's Mary, a relative from another branch of her family. And that visit would have been completely unexpected to Elizabeth. You know, we live in a world of planning. You're already making and have been for a while your, your Christmas plans, right? Who's coming over for Christmas? Where are you going? Or when do your guests arrive? Or maybe when do they leave, right? <laughs> but the ancient world was really different. It was full of surprises. No cell phones, no texts, no calls to make arrangements. People just showed up, and that's exactly what happened here. Mary has heard also from Gabriel that she will miraculously conceive a child, and not just any child, but the Savior, Jesus, the Son of God. And like Zechariah, Mary has questions, but unlike the priest, Mary's questions come from a heart of submissive faith, not cynical doubt. 
Mary gets her amazing news, and then Gabriel says, but wait, there's more. And he tells her about her Elizabeth, uh, her relative Elizabeth, and uh, she's at this point, six months along, in her own miraculous and unexpected pregnancy. And Gabriel leaves, and Mary packs up to see Elizabeth. What a blessing that Gabriel lets Mary know. I mean, the story would have been incredible. Leave it at that. Mary up here in the north, Elizabeth down in the south, they both have their stories. Eventually, John and Jesus are going to get together, right? But Gabriel tells Mary, and Mary takes action. Elizabeth isn't just family. Elizabeth is a true kindred spirit. And of all the people that Mary could be with, Elizabeth will understand. Age difference aside, this is going to unite them. And Elizabeth is going to believe what has happened to Mary. Now, up to this point, we have two separate, unexpected accounts, but they're going to connect, and they're going to connect really dramatically. Elizabeth lived about 100 miles south of Mary in the hill country of Judah. You can see it here on this slide. This would have been just south of Jerusalem. Mary lived in Nazareth, a small town in, the, in Galilee that's north of Israel. It was about a four- or five-day journey at best, and it was across hilly country, and you had to go around dreaded Samaria. Jews did not walk through Samaria. You can see the route kind of going around there. People didn't travel alone, let alone a teenage girl. So it's probably true that Mary went with maybe a caravan of other people traveling at that time. Maybe Joseph even helped make the arrangements, or he might have even traveled with her. We don't really know. Wouldn't that be interesting to know who was with her and if she told them anything, right? Well, either way, it's, of course, the first of several trips, if you think about it, that Mary's going to take in her lifetime from Nazareth to Judea. And we know that in nine months, she's going to be back on this exact road again, only this time going to Bethlehem. And Mary makes a journey already pondering in her heart. Maybe, maybe already trying to work through the words of the song and the melody that she's going to sing. My soul, my soul, maybe not that tune. Magnifies the Lord. You know that song, right? He has done great things for me. And she's working through the melody. Wouldn't that be amazing if that really was the melody? <laughs> and that four-day journey, it just flies by because she has a song in her heart and the Savior growing in her womb. And she's excited to see her cousin because she already knows Elizabeth's great news. But Elizabeth, as far as we know, has no idea at all that Mary is on her way, let alone what amazing news that Mary is going to share. And like pregnant women do, Mary's eager to swap stories, right? To share in that fellowship and the delight of being with child. But more now, because these women have been called to fulfill the promise of God, the longest, most expected and awaited promise of all, the promise that was actually given to the first woman. In Genesis chapter 3, after the devastation of sin and broken fellowship with their creator, Adam, Eve, and the serpent hear the first prophecy. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head you will strike his heel. And now after her journey, Mary finally arrives. Luke records in verse 24 that Elizabeth kept herself hidden. Mary may have been the only other person besides Zechariah that Elizabeth has seen in six months. So here are two women. Both of them have an extraordinary story to share. 
Elizabeth's story was remarkably unexpected. After all these years of unanswered prayer, all this time bearing the shame of a woman who could produce no offspring to carry on the family name, seeing her friends and family grow up and raise children, and now probably even grandchildren, even maybe great-grandchildren, Elizabeth is literally a walking miracle six months out in the same line now of the matriarchs of the Old Testament and that long lineage of barrenness that God redeemed women like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and now she is expecting a child. Zechariah and Elizabeth are like the new Abraham and Sarah. What would Mary think about Elizabeth's remarkable news? But Mary has her news of her own to share, and her own story would shine, of course, more brightly by far. Elizabeth has conceived in the usual way. God has blessed her and Zechariah and caused them to have a child in their old age. But Mary was a virgin. Jesus Christ was not conceived in the usual way. His life was not from a human father. So Mary arrives at the door, the front door of her relative Elizabeth. And something unexpected and miraculous happens at the sound of Mary's voice. Verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The whole encounter is filled with joy, joy, joy. In fact, the journey that Mary took from Nazareth past Jerusalem was a journey of joy and expectation. Today, if you or I have great news, something we're bursting at the seams to share, what do we do? We just grab our phone, we FaceTime with our friend, we call our family out of state. I call my aunt all the way up in Washington, instantly can get her on the line, or I call my husband downstairs. <laughs> Instant sharing of joy or a meme. And uh, I can post it, I can tweet it, I can make a TikTok dance out of it. Uh, instantly it all happens, but Mary's been caravanning for a hundred miles across rugged terrain for at least four days, maybe longer, all that time, excitement building to see Elizabeth going over how she's going to tell the news. Hey, Elizabeth, she imagines herself walking to her front door. Guess who? Right? And now in the sixth month of pregnancy, well, that's the time when you're going to feel that that life start to grow inside of you and you're, you're going to get some movement. But something amazingly unexpected happens, more than a movement. Elizabeth exclaims prophetically, the baby leaped. The Greek word is the word we get the word skip from, eskertasin. He leaps, he skips. That's John, the fetus, skipping inside her at the sound of Mary's voice. Mary calls into their home, and at the sound of her voice, John leaps and skips inside of Elizabeth. Mamas, who remembers their child kicking in you around this time of your child's growth? Maybe it was after a spicy meal. <laughs> Maybe after standing up or sitting down or rolling over. <laughs> Just all the time, right? In What to Expect When You're Expecting, you read that at six months, a baby is about the size of the ear of corn or this water bottle right here. Their skin is reddish. Their veins are visible because their skin is transparent. The baby has finger and toe prints, and their eyes can open. And the baby can raise his eyebrows. And all that is the normal description of a normal baby. But this is no everyday baby. This is the youngest prophet. 
a transparent, odd-looking, little bottle-sized prophet prophesying in the womb, leaping, identifying. This is John, soon to be named the baptizer, the one who Isaiah would cry, say would cry out, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Only he's not crying out yet. He's leaping and he's skipping at the sound of the mother, of the Savior of the world, and he knows it. The child growing now in her womb knows. Jesus would say of John, he was the greatest prophet who ever lived. He was the final prophet of the old covenant. He was chosen to get everyone ready for Jesus the Lord of the new covenant. Picture this. The old covenant encountering the new covenant for the first time. John and Jesus under one roof. And Philip Ryken words it wonderfully in his commentary. He describes this like this. He says, like electrical contact between two power stations, the results were explosive. There was a spontaneous outburst of joy. And you would expect two women to hug and be giddy in sharing their pregnancy stories. Women do that, right? And I'm sure that's exactly what they do. But first, Elizabeth is overcome with unexpected joy. She's seeing her cousin, but she's spontaneously filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 42, in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. <laughs> but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me right here before Mary has said anything? Mary hasn't said anything at all. Nothing about this miracle meeting with Gabriel. Nothing about the amazing news. All Mary has done is greet her family. And zing, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, knows that she knows and she hears and she just simply knows. And not only that, she makes the most profound confession anyone can make. Jesus is her Lord. Thomas, the disciple of Christ, confessed Jesus as my Lord and my God after the resurrection. But Elizabeth calls Jesus her Lord before he's even born. <laughs> Ask yourself this. How much do you need to know about Jesus before you acknowledge him as Lord? Elizabeth had not heard any of his teaching. He hadn't performed any miracles, but she confesses him as Lord. All Elizabeth had was one simple life-changing truth. The child who was miraculously within Mary was Lord of all, and if he was Lord of all, then he was her Lord. Elizabeth was the first then to confess the lordship of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and God incarnate, and she speaks with joy and surprise and humility when she says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You have to remember, 400 years of silence. Where is God? When is he coming? 
Will he fulfill? And she's blown away. The Holy Spirit fills her, and she knows it's time. Elizabeth, who has experienced her own miraculous pregnancy, knows she carries the one who will be the greatest prophet, has nothing but joy and reverence in this moment. And instead of greeting Mary back with, well, just wait till you hear what's happened to this old lady. Just wait till you hear what happened to old man Zach and your auntie or cousin Elizabeth. In verse 44, Elizabeth says, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. You have no idea when you're pregnant why that baby is moving. You kind of start to figure it out. Oh, spicy food. <laughs> I ate that or I uh, rolled over or stood up or whatever. But she knows. The baby in my womb didn't just skip, didn't just leap, didn't just roll over, didn't just move in on me and kick me in the ribs. He leaped for joy. Blessed, verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Not only is little John the Baptist leaping in utero at the sound of Mary's voice, Elizabeth can feel that, but she feels and knows something prophetically that the Holy Spirit helps her understand. This isn't just last night's hummus and falafel causing John to leap. This is joy. This is 400 years of silence, thousands of years of promise and prophecy and waiting and longing and wondering how long. And David wrote the psalm that echoes in our hearts the longing of waiting and expectation in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Or Habakkuk who wrote, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Will you not hear? And now, listen, now we have a timeline. Because if there's one thing that women know, it's the timeline of the child growing in them. We know within days of missing that first period, and we began calculating from that moment. The very first prophecy God spoke included details about this most precious and, yes, painful cycle of life. Pain you will have in childbirth, God said, and mamas know the pain and the waiting and the timeline. So these two women knew what no one else would know. This was the fullness of time. And in six months, Elizabeth, for Elizabeth and nine for Mary, everything would change. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit reveals to Elizabeth what the child within her is feeling and its joy. That says something about the life of an unborn child, doesn't it? There's joy here. Not only for Mary and Elizabeth, but for those who are yet to be born, for, for you and for me. Moved by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth pronounces, she shouts the Greek word here, is the same word we get the word megaphone. She's overcome. After months in silence and seclusion with her mute, speechless husband, she literally breaks through that silence and yells out this megaphone blessing. Mary must have been really stunned. <laughs> and she peeks in, she greets her family, getting ready to share her exciting news and hear Elizabeth's story, but she can't even speak because Elizabeth, and then of course little John the fetus, are both too excited. There's so much joy and there's so much hope and there's so much promise in this humble little home. And, and speaking of humble, do you see how humble Elizabeth is? She had her own miraculous, unexpected encounter, but she exemplifies humility. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed. And wasn't John like his mother? Here's Elizabeth, and she could have said, Mary, let me tell you everything. 
I'm going to be used of the Lord. But for Elizabeth, it's all about Jesus. Blessed are you among women. You're going to be the mother of my Lord. It's all about Jesus. And isn't that exactly how John was? You remember John? He must increase, I must decrease. Where did John learn that humility? From his mother. John was just like his mother. Could have been all about Elizabeth. She was the older one. She was the first to hear from Gabriel. About 400 years of silence was broken with her husband, and in her womb was the man Jesus would declare was the greatest prophet, and Mary would have loved to have heard the story, I'm sure. But with Elizabeth, the focus is Jesus. What an example of humility she is then to all of us. Next, you see, blessed, 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 blessed all over these verses. It's repeated in a way that indicates rhythm in the Greek, and so this is probably a song which would make it the first of five songs celebrating the birth of Jesus. The song of Elizabeth is then the first Christmas carol, if you think of it. Next, Mary's going to sing a song of praise. It begins in verse 46. We call this the Magnificat. The song of Zechariah finally believes, and he sings a song recorded at the beginning of verse 67. The song of the angels, Luke 2, and then finally the song of Simeon later in chapter 2. And Elizabeth focuses on the faith of Mary. Look again at verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Now think for a second. Whose house is this? Well, it says in the scripture, it's Elizabeth's house. But it's Zechariah's house. Back in verse 40, Luke wrote specifically that Mary entered the house of Zechariah. Has anything miraculous happened to him? <laughs> yes. Zechariah had an angel come to him while he was in the middle of praying and serving in the temple, while people were praying and worshiping outside the temple. Gabriel himself told him that his wife would have a baby, and Zechariah responded by saying, I'm old, <laughs> and my wife is really old. Hey, now, right? Remember what the angel said? All right, Zechariah, she's still going to have that baby, and you're not going to be able to speak until that baby comes into the world and 400 years of silence, God speaks to the priest, the religious leader of the day, and that man, that leader of God's people doesn't have the faith to believe. I can't help but imagine that Zechariah was in earshot when Elizabeth looks at Mary and maybe at the corner of her eye and says, blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise. Believed! <laughs> Do you see? Luke is drawing attention to this. Zechariah, the one you'd think who would know better, the man who served God, knew the word, even described as righteous before God, and walking blamelessly in his commandments, and yet something didn't pierce his heart. And his first response to the miraculous encounter is doubt, not belief. And then there was Mary who had said when Gabriel encountered her, and her response was the opposite of Zechariah's and said, Behold, it is done to me. Be it done to me as you have appointed, O Lord. And Mary's response isn't resistance. It isn't doubt. It was simple, submissive faith and belief. God said it. She received it and believed it. And here is Elizabeth saying, Mary, Mary, you sweet child, you believe God's word with ease, uncomplicated by doubt. You're blessed because you believed. How are we supposed to respond to Jesus? Faith and joy. They've just shown you. Believe on him for your salvation. Receive what he's given you with joy. Because Jesus himself said, I came that your joy may be full, complete. And how does Mary, how does Elizabeth, how does John respond? With faith and joy. You want to know how to respond to Jesus? There's the example. 
And here's the image. <laughs> isn't that beautiful? Oh, isn't that beautiful? Can you say with Elizabeth, Jesus is my Lord. The path on which Jesus leads you may not be the path that you would have chosen. It may not be the path that you would have expected. Do you think Elizabeth wanted to be barren until she was an old lady? But it is the path on which you will find great joy because it is the path on which he will walk with you and it is the path on which he will fulfill his purposes for you. When you find you lack joy, when you find resentful heart, worried, maybe disappointed, even in what's happening in your life, I encourage you to consider that you have lost sight of Jesus as your Lord. You may be like Zechariah, you know that you know, but you've lost sight of him truly as your Lord. Think about Mary, think about Elizabeth, these women facing enormous difficulties, and you might be facing difficulties today as well. Both of them are pregnant, both of them are poor, one of them is not married, the other has a husband who's a priest who can't even believe in God, and now he can't even speak, but these women have joy. Their joy is in the coming of the long-expected Jesus. Their joy is in the expectation and the promise of God. Their joy is that however difficult life may become, God is for me. God is with me. All his purposes will be fulfilled. His purposes will be fulfilled. This is the joy of those who say to Jesus, you are my Lord. The unexpected detail then in this account to me is the one that you'd think would get it the most, Zechariah, the man of the house, the priest. He doesn't feature much in this story at all. His name appears once in verse 40. Mary entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. But why? Because Zechariah's book, in a sense, his book was titled, What to Expect When You're Not Expecting. No matter where we are in our faith, we should live with constant expectation in our Savior and Lord. What can you expect if you're not expecting? If you don't really have faith in God, well, to be sidelined, or worse, silenced. But Mary and Elizabeth are reminders to us of living in humble expectation. What to expect when you're expecting God? To have joy, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have peace and to have confidence, the kind of confidence that led Mary to travel a hundred miles to see her cousin because she believed the Lord. What do you expect when you're expecting from Jesus joy and faith and confidence? Mary would stay with Elizabeth for the next three months and then head back home to Nazareth right before John was born. And then six months later, Mary would make that trip again, this time to Bethlehem with Joseph where Jesus would be born. And Luke records Mary's joyful song, that song that she was probably writing and maybe even singing over Jesus she would continue to sing over him after he was born. I'm sure she wrote these beautiful words. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. What can you expect when you're expecting the Lord? To know him, to trust him. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. We're going to have a time of worship a time for communion. Take these moments to prepare and reset your heart, to pray, to sing like Mary to God. He has done great things. His name is holy. Our long-expected Jesus did not leave us waiting and unfulfilled. He came, he lived, he loved us, he died. He gave his life in our place. Remember that as you take the cup 
and the bread. Remember his body given for you, his blood, the new covenant shed for you. Remember him. Magnify him. Pause in your prayer and your worship. Quiet your mind. Be still before God, our Father. Set your heart and expectations once again upon him and magnify him, our long-expected Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have done great things. We are lost without you. We often feel swallowed up by the anxiety and the longing of this world. And we come to you today with expectation and thankfulness for what you have done for us, what you continue to do in our lives. Bless our worship. Bless this time now of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.